Section 78 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Suicide, Part 10, The Runk Case in Philadelphia, Part 2. Charge of the Court. Gentlemen of the jury, this case, as has been said to you, is one of a great deal of importance, one which deserves your very careful attention, and one which can only be decided justly by understanding the law that governs it, and by adhering strictly to the evidence. As frequently occurs, a good deal of testimony has been heard, and several questions have been raised, which will be found, in the view the court now takes of the case, to be entirely unimportant. I only regret that we could not know at the outset how the case would present itself to our minds at the close, so that we might have avoided the unnecessary expenditure of time and unnecessary taxing of your strength and patience and devoted ourselves to what now turns out to be the consideration on which the case must be decided. Counsel for Plaintiff has presented to the court several points on which we are asked to charge for the purpose of getting their view of the law before you. The plaintiff's first, second, and third points are disaffirmed. The fourth is also disaffirmed for the reasons given in answering the defendant's first point, of which I will speak directly. The fifth point reads as follows. If one whose life is insured intentionally kills himself when his reasoning faculties are so far impaired by insanity that he is unable to understand the moral character of his act, even if he does understand its physical nature, consequence and effect, such self-destruction will not of itself prevent recovery upon the policies. This is affirmed. I will say, however, that we must understand what is meant and intended by the term, moral character of his act. It is a term which has been used by the courts and is correctly inserted in the point, but it is a term which might be misunderstood. We are not to enter the domain of metaphysics in determining what constitutes insanity, so far as the subject is involved in this case. If Mr. Runk understood what he was doing, and the consequences of his act or acts to himself as well as to others. In other words, if he understood, as a man of sound mind would, the consequences to follow from his contemplated suicide to himself, his character, his family, and others, and was able to comprehend the wrongfulness of what he was about to do, as a sane man would, then he is to be regarded by you as sane. Otherwise, he is not. The defendant's first point reads as follows. There can be no recovery by the estate of a dead man of the amount of policies of insurance upon his life if he takes his own life designedly, whilst of sound mind. This point is affirmed. The defendant's first point, which I have just read to you and affirmed, and the plaintiff's fourth point, which I have disaffirmed, raise the same question and it is one of very great difficulty, 
It is very remarkable that the question has never been directly passed upon by any court of last resort, nor, so far as been discovered, by any other in this country or in England. When the points were presented, I said in your presence that in the absence of authority or of custom on the part of insurance companies or in the business of insuring bearing on the subject, I would feel little hesitation in holding that suicide by the insured, while in a sane condition of mind, constitutes a defense to the payment of the policy. But that I incline to believe there was authority to the contrary. It is conceded, however, that there is nothing to be found on the subject but dicta, and these are conflicting, and there is no evidence before the court of any custom in the business of insurance, bearing on this subject. I regret that I must pass on the question without opportunity for examination or reflection. It seems to me, however, that every contract of life insurance contains an implied condition that the insured will not intentionally terminate his life, but that the insurer shall have the benefit of the chances of its continuance until terminated in the natural, ordinary course of events. It is on these chances that the premium is calculated and based, and the contract is founded. It cannot be doubted that if one having a policy on his buildings, insuring against fire, should intentionally burn them, his act would be a defense to the policy, nor that one taking a policy on the life of his debtor, whom he subsequently murders, cannot recover the insurance. In principle, I am unable to distinguish these cases from that where the insured commits suicide. The fraud on the insurer seems to be as clear in the latter case as in either of the others. Additional reasons. A different construction of the policy would seem to make it a contract to pay the insurance immediately if the insured commits suicide, thus offering an inducement to commit this act. If the insured lives out the ordinary term of life, the time of payment may be very remote, and therefore the inducement to commit suicide is very great if payment follows this event. Of course, no insurer would intentionally enter into such a contract. It would be destruction of its interests. His premiums are calculated, and his prospect of gain is based on the insured's chances of life under ordinary circumstances and if the latter may render the insurance payable immediately by committing suicide, the former is completely at his mercy. If, however, an insurer should enter into such a contract, the law would declare it void because of its violation of public policy. It would seem, in effect, to be a contract to pay money for the commission of suicide. If suicide results from insanity, it is not, in legal contemplation, the intentional act of the insured. What constitutes insanity, in the sense in which we are using the term, has been described to you, and need not be repeated. If this man understood the consequences and effects of what he was doing or contemplating to himself and to others, if he understood the wrongfulness of it, as a sane man would, then he was sane, so far as we have occasion to consider the subject, otherwise he was not. Here the insured committed suicide, and as the evidence shows, did it for the purpose 
as expressed in his communication to the executor of his will, as well as in the letters written to his aunt and his partner, of enabling the executor to recover on the policies and use the money to pay his obligations. I therefore charge you that if he was in a sane condition of mind at the time, as I have described, able to understand the moral character and consequences of his act, his suicide is a defense to this suit. The only question, therefore, for consideration is this question of sanity. There is nothing else in the case. That he committed suicide, and committed it with a view to the collection of this money from the insurance companies, and having it applied to the payment of his obligations, is not controverted, and not controvertible. It is shown by his own declaration, possibly not verbal, but written. The only question, therefore, is whether or not he was in a sane condition of mind, or whether his mind was so impaired that he could not, as I have described, properly comprehend and understand the character and consequences of the act he was about to commit. In the absence of evidence on the subject, he must be presumed to have been sane. The presumption of sanity is not overthrown by the act of committing suicide. Suicide may be used as evidence of insanity, but, standing alone, it is not sufficient to establish it. It is sometimes thoughtlessly said, if a man commits a high crime or takes his life, that he was insane, he was crazy. The fact that a man commits a high crime is not evidence of insanity, and the fact that he takes his life does not of itself overthrow the presumption of sanity. There must be something more than this. Therefore, we start with the presumption of sanity in the defendant's favor and the burden of showing insanity on the plaintiff. You have heard the evidence on the subject and the comments of counsel respecting it, and from this you must determine how the question should be decided. I believe the wife and sister alone expressed an opinion that his mind was unbalanced. Whether either of them formed this opinion before his death, I am uncertain. The wife said she did not. If the opinion is based on the fact alone that he committed suicide, it is of no value. If it is based on this fact and his previous conduct, condition, or conversation, it may and should be considered. Its value still is for you. These witnesses, together with two or three others and probably more, you will remember, testified to his conversation, his conduct, his nervousness, the change in his appearance, and so on, shortly before his death. You must judge in how far this testimony tends to show an insane condition of mind, such as I have described. Might or might not the natural worry and distress occasioned by his unfortunate circumstances and the contemplation of self-destruction as a means of relief account for his conduct and appearance without the existence of such insanity? On the other hand, the defendant has called your attention on this subject to the fact that he conducted the business of his firm during his partner's absence and up to within a very short time of his death, and you have seen how methodically he prepared for his end, and letters he wrote, the instructions prepared for his executor, and so on. 
now from all the evidence on the subject, and your attention has been very fully called to it by counsel, and there need be no repetition of it. You must determine the question of sanity. While I thus submit the question, and remind you that the responsibility of deciding it rests upon you alone, I consider it a duty to say that I do not regard the evidence on which the plaintiff relies as strong. It may be sufficient. That is a question entirely for you. If you find him to have been insane, as I have described, your verdict will be for the plaintiff. Otherwise, it will be for the defendant. There is nothing more that I need say. I can render you no further assistance. I will repeat, you must be very careful to guard your minds against the influence of sympathy or prejudice. Each of the parties is entitled to equal consideration at your hands. If you are not guided and controlled by the law, as stated by the court, and the evidence as heard, you will do great wrong to the parties and wrong to yourselves. Counsel for plaintiff accept to the disaffirmance of the first, second, and third points submitted on behalf of plaintiff. Also to the disaffirmance of the fourth point submitted on behalf of plaintiff and to the answer to said fourth point. Also to the answer of the court affirming the fifth point submitted on behalf of plaintiff. Also to that part of the charge where the court says, I therefore charge you that if he was in a sane condition of mind at the time, as I have described, able to understand the moral character and consequences of his act, his suicide is a defense to this suit. Also to that part of the charge of the court, saying that suicide standing alone is not sufficient to establish insanity, and if the opinion is based on that fact alone, it is of no value. Also to that point of the charge where the court says, well, I thus submit the question and remind you that the responsibility of deciding it rests upon you alone. I consider it as a duty to say that I do not regard the evidence on which the plaintiff relies as strong. The points submitted on behalf of plaintiff are as follows. One, the evidence is not sufficient to warrant the jury in finding that the deceased entered into the contracts of insurance evidenced by the policies sued upon with the intention of defrauding the company, defendant issuing the same. The evidence is not sufficient to warrant the jury in finding that the deceased entered into the said contracts of insurance with the intention of committing suicide. Three, the evidence upon the part of the defendant does not warrant any inference of fact which constitutes a defense in law to the plaintiff's right to recover the amount due upon the said policies. Four, the mere fact that the insured committed suicide does not, standing alone, avoid the policies, there being no condition to that effect in the policies. Terry's case, 15 Wall, 586. Five, if one whose life is insured intentionally kills himself when his reasoning faculties are so far impaired by insanity that he is unable to understand the moral character of his act, even if he does understand its physical nature, consequence and effect, such self-destruction will not of itself prevent recovery upon the policies. John Hampton Barnes, Richard C. Dale, George Tucker Bisham. 
attorneys for plaintiff. The points submitted on behalf of defendant are as follows. 1. There can be no recovery by the estate of a dead man of the amount of policies of insurance upon his life if he takes his own life designedly whilst of sound mind. 2. If you find that Runk committed suicide when he was of sound mind, being morally and mentally conscious of the act he was about to commit, of its consequences, and of its nature, with the deliberate intent to secure to his estate and to his creditors the amount of the policy sued upon, there can be no recovery. 3. If you find that Runk obtained the policies of insurance sued upon, at a time when he was insolvent and an embezzler, with the intent thereby to secure, in case of his death, from the defendant, the fund with which to pay those to whom he was indebted, and whose property he had embezzled, that he subsequently committed suicide whilst of sound mind, with the deliberate intent to carry out this scheme, there can be no recovery. 4. The defendant is entitled to set off the loss occasioned by the failure of Runk to keep his agreement not to die by his own hand within two years of the date thereof. The amount of this loss cannot be less than that of the policy sued upon. In the closing term of the year in the United States Circuit Court of Appeals, the case came up on appeal. Justice Atchison delivered the opinion as follows affirming the judgment of the Circuit Court of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Atchison J. This was an action brought by A. Howard Ritter, executor of the last will of William M. Runk, late of the city of Philadelphia, deceased, against the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York, upon six policies of insurance, together amounting to the sum of $75,000, all bearing date, November 10, 1891, issued by the defendant company to William M. Runk upon his life. On the fifth day of October, 1892, Mr. Runk, with great deliberation, committed suicide by a pistol shot at a time when, as the evidence indicates and the jury has found, he was of sound mind and able to understand both the physical and the moral character and consequences of his act of self-destruction. At the time of his suicide, Mr. Runk carried insurance upon his life to the amount of $500,000, the policies for which had been issued to him by a number of different companies. When the policies here in suit were taken, Mr. Runk already carried upon his life policies of insurance issued by other companies to the amount of $315,000, of which $135,000 had been assigned by him to his aunt, Mrs. Barcroft, as collateral security for monies he owed her. At the same time, he effected the insurance, which is the subject matter of this suit. Mr. Runk took out another policy of insurance on his life in the defending company for the benefit of his wife for $20,000. Shortly thereafter, in the month of January 1892, he took out in his own name additional insurance upon his life to the amount of $90,000 in other companies. In connection with the facts already stated, there was evidence upon the trial of this case tending to show that at the time the policies in suit were taken out, Runk was insolvent, that his entire income did not exceed $700 a month, 
out of which he had to support his family, that theretofore he had been engaged in, and thereafter continued to be engaged in, stock speculations on a large scale, in which he sustained heavy losses, that he had then begun a system of surreptitious withdrawals, amounting at his death, amounting at his death to eighty-six thousand dollars of his contribution of $100,000 to the capital stock of the firm of Darlington, Runk and Company, of which he was a member, in violation of his partnership obligations, and which withdrawals he heartfully concealed, and it appeared further that, before the date of the policies in suit, Mr. Runk had embezzled funds of the Protestant Episcopal Mission, of which he was treasurer, to the amount of $30,000. On the day of his death, or the day before, Mr. Runk wrote a letter to the executor named in his will, Mr. Ritter, giving a particular account of his liabilities and a list of his insurance policies, and directing the application of the insurance monies to his indebtedness. This letter, and also other letters in evidence written by Mr. Runk just before he shot himself, clearly evinced that he deliberately committed suicide with the intention and in order that the insurance he had affected on his life might be collected by his executor and applied to the payment of his liabilities. As the case went to the jury, the only question of facts submitted to that tribunal was the question of the testator's sanity at the time he took his life. Nevertheless, Error is assigned to the refusal of the court to affirm the plaintiff's first and second points. Namely, one, the evidence is not sufficient to warrant the jury in finding that the deceased entered into the contracts of insurance evidenced by the policies sued upon the intention of defrauding the company, defendant issuing the same. Two, the evidence is not sufficient to warrant the judge in finding that the deceased entered into the said contracts of insurance with the intention of committing suicide. The assignments of error under this head raised the question whether there was any evidence in the cause which would have justified the judge in finding that the policies in suit had been taken out by Mr. Runk with the fraudulent purpose of ending his life by his own hand. We think that there was such evidence, and that affirmation of the above-quoted points would have been erroneous. True, it was not shown by the declaration of the insured, or by any other like positive evidence, that at the time he effected the insurance, he had formed the purpose to take his life. But such direct evidence of dishonest intention is rarely obtainable. Fraudulent intention is seldom openly avowed, and ordinarily, its existence must be deduced from the circumstances surrounding the particular transaction, apparent motive, and considered before and after the event. Here we have a man heavily in debt and insolvent, who had unlawfully appropriated to his own use trust funds and was in constant danger of exposure, who had plunged into hazardous stock speculations, and who was already carrying an unusually large amount of life insurance his income being grossly inadequate to pay the accruing premiums on that insurance and maintain his family. In this desperate state of affairs, this man takes out additional life insurance, amounting, with the policy in favor of his wife, to the large sum of $95,000, 
which he knew we could not maintain for any great length of time. Then about two months later, we find him still further increasing his life insurance by other policies to the amount of $90,000. Nine months thereafter, when in a sane condition of mind, he takes his life with the express purpose of enabling his estate to realize upon his life policies, leaving specific written directions to his executor how to apply the insurance monies in discharge of his liabilities. It is indeed the fact that Mr. Runk's suicide followed immediately after certain irregularities in his conduct of the business of Darlington, Runk & Company had been detected, and when full exposure of his misconduct was imminent. Still, however, it was for a jury to determine, under all the circumstances, when Mr. Runk first formed the design to take his life, and the evidence, we think, would have well warranted the finding that at the time he took out the policies in suit, he was preparing for the worst, and that he then contemplated and had determined upon self-destruction should his stock speculations fail him in the near future. We are not then able to sustain any of the assignments of error upon this branch of the case. The plaintiff's fourth point was refused, and the defendant's first point was affirmed, and the court charged the jury that if the insured Mr. Runk was in the same condition of mind at the time of self-destruction, his suicide was a defense to this suit. These instructions are assigned for error, and the assignments raise the question whether the personal representatives of one who, when sane, deliberately kills himself with the intent to secure to his estate the amount of insurance he has affected upon his life, can recover the insurance money the policy containing no provision with respect to suicide. It is conceded that this precise question was not involved or decided in any case prior to the present one. In the cases brought to our attention was suicide during sanity by the person whose life was insured was held not to be a valid defense. The policy was issued for the benefit of some other person or an independent interest by assignment or otherwise had been acquired by a person. Not one of the decisions, we think, gives countenance to the idea that the personal representatives of the insured can recover with a latter while sane, deliberately commit suicide for the purpose of compelling payment of the insurance money to his estate. That there can be no recovery in such a case has been asserted by courts and judges whose expressions of opinions command great respect. It is a fundamental condition of the contract of life insurance, even if the policy be silent on the subject, that the insured, while in a sound mental condition, will not voluntarily destroy his life. The contract would lack mutuality of obligation if the insured, at his own pleasure, by intentional self-destruction, could terminate the payment of the stipulated premiums and precipitate the payment of the sum insured. To sanction a recovery in such a case would be to reward fraud and encourage wrongdoing. The remaining assignments of error relate to the instructions of the court as to what constitutes that degree of mental unsoundness which will relieve against what otherwise would be the consequence of self-destruction. Here it seems to be proper to cite at length the plaintiff's fifth point, and the answer thereto and the accompanying observations made by the court. 
These were as follows. 5. If one whose life is insured intentionally kills himself, when his reasoning faculties are so far impaired by insanity that he is unable to understand the moral character of his act, even if he does understand its physical nature, consequence and effect, such self-destruction will not of itself prevent recovery upon the policies. That is affirmed. I will say, however, that we must understand what is meant and intended by the term moral character of his act. It is a term which has been used by the courts and is correctly inserted in the point. But it is a term which might be misunderstood. We are not to enter the domain of metaphysics in determining what constitutes insanity, so far as the subject is involved in this case. If Mr. Runk understood what he was doing and the consequences of his act or acts to himself as well as to others, in other words, as a man of sound mind would, the consequences to follow from his contemplated suicide to himself, his character, his family and others, and was able to comprehend the wrongfulness of what he was about to do as a sane man would, then he is to be regarded by you as sane." Otherwise, he is not. In a subsequent part of the charge, the court said, I therefore charge you that if he was in the same condition of mind at the time, as I have described, able to understand the moral character and consequence of his act, his suicide is a defense to the suit. We are not able to discover in these instructions anything of which the plaintiff in error can justly complain. The explanatory remarks which the learned court made in connection with his affirmance of the plaintiff's fifth point were pertinent and proper. Upon the question of insanity, the jury was plainly informed that to prevent a recovery, it was not enough that Mr. Runk understood the physical nature, consequence, and effect of his act of self-destruction, but that he must have also understood the moral character and consequences of the act, and that, if he did not comprehend its wrongfulness, he was to be regarded by the jury as insane. Nor were the instructions of the court inadequate to the facts of the case. We think that they fully covered the question of insanity here involved. We do not perceive that in the instructions complained of, there was any departure from the principles approved by the Supreme Court in the cases of Life Insurance Company versus Terry. Insurance Company versus Rodell, Manhattan Life Insurance Company versus Broughton, and Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance Company versus Aiken. The charge, we think, conformed to the rulings in those cases. We are of the opinion that this record discloses no error, and the judgment of the circuit court is affirmed. <laughs>